Well, I know that uh, as we make our way to the end of 2021, if you've been with us at all, you know our theme for this year has been a journey of faith. And for us, that is not just a, a theme or um, just an image. It actually expresses the reality of the history of our church. It truly has been a journey of faith. And each season during the year, we've explored a different facet of faith. So for this season, the Advent season, we've already alluded to this, our theme is, O Come, All Ye Faithful. Now that Christmas carol, it's one of my favorite Christmas carols. I, I love the, the theology in this hymn, and I've just been drawn to it. And it is in, in your hymnal, I think it's numbered 103, it is attributed to John Francis Wade. Now, Wade was an English Catholic working in France, and he was a musician, but his primary um, vocation was a manuscript copyist. And so, as best we can tell, he actually discovered this carol or hymn, and he provided the copy for it in Latin, and it was originally published with those four Latin verses in 1751. In the hymnal that you and I have here at First Baptist, all four of those Latin stanzas are present and have been translated into English by Frederick Oakley. He published the English translation that most of us use today in 1852. However, this carol has an interesting history because after a good bit of research was done, the King John IV of Portugal was an, also a very talented musician and he had an incredible music library. Much of it was destroyed um, through an earthquake in Lisbon, but some of the material survived and we have actually found a copy of this hymn or this carol that dates back to 1640. So it predates the work of John Francis Wade. And there are all kinds of theories about who actually wrote this particular hymn. There are even sometimes discrepancies about how to translate it into English. You know, for example, that phrase, seeing all ye bright hosts of heaven above, or seeing all ye citizens of heaven above. Both of those are translations from the original Latin. Later, once the hymn or carol was published, four more stanzas were added, all in Latin, the last one written anonymously. And there are some who actually think that this hymn <clears throat> actually dates back to the 1200s and was written by a group of Cistercian monks. It is used every year in the Advent celebration by both Anglicans and Catholics in their formal uh, celebrations of Advent. If you were to attend the the choir of, of King's College, Cambridge, you would notice that this is the next to the last carol sung in Lessons and Carols every year. If you were to watch the Midnight Mass at St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican, <clears throat> this hymn is always sung, <clears throat> excuse me, at the Midnight Mass. And most folks who have studied the hymn believe that <clears throat> the import of the hymn was written for the shepherds there in the shepherd's field in Bethlehem. The admonition, 
come to Bethlehem and see what has happened. So for the next five Sunday mornings, we're going to explore together the theology that actually is taught in this great Christmas carol. Uh, we're going to connect it to the biblical basis that underlies it. So <clears throat> we'll begin this morning with this first sermon entitled, O Come Ye to Bethlehem. The text is a very familiar one. It is one that we don't normally read the very first Sunday of Advent, uh, but we will this year. And it is found in Luke's gospel, Luke 2 verse 1. And it's where Luke tells the story very simply, very succinctly, if you will, about the birth of our Lord. So if you have your copy of the New Testament, I invite you to look with me at Luke 2. Uh, you know it's our custom to stand and honor the Lord Jesus when the gospel is read, so I invite you to stand with me as we hear these words from the gospel. <clears throat> In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, this morning we begin the Advent season right in the heart of the chaos of the pandemic. And I think you would agree with me that is exactly how it has felt chaotic. These last 18 months have in some ways been incomparable to any other 18 month stretch in my ministry lifetime, in my adult lifetime. We are, we are learning so much has happened during these 18 months. I can't even imagine any sector of our society across the world that hasn't been touched somehow by the pandemic. And we're learning there's much more going on in our culture than just the COVID-19 pandemic. Ed Stetzer, he is uh, head of the Billy Graham School at Wheaton, he's a researcher, pastor. He, he is um, someone who just spends a lot of time evaluating what's taking place in the culture from a Christian perspective. And I really have a a great deal of respect for Ed. I attended uh, numerous seminars that Ed, I have attended numerous seminars Ed has, has led. I, I was in one in Galveston just a few weeks ago. Ed has been writing on this topic. And here's what he proposes. He says, right now, there are at least six pandemics. The first one, of course, is the disease itself. We all recognize that COVID-19 has been devastating. And thousands upon thousands of people have lost their lives. People have lost their jobs. And there's been a great deal of human suffering. The second pandemic, he calls it distrust across our culture. It's Ed's contention that distrust is at the highest level in American society. Americans have the lowest trust level of 
any season in which we have ever been polled. Pick an institution, pick something that used to, we could, we could put our feet on and find grounding. Americans no longer trust in those institutions. There has been damage from technology. Ed talks about the, the impact of social media. He compares it to the era of technology in the Roman world. Many of you have been to Rome with us and it's fascinating when you go and, and you look at these hills there in Rome and certainly you look at the hills where the Caesars lived and they had running water in their homes. These incredibly wealthy Romans and the Romans searched for a, a, a material they could make the pipes out of. Needed to be malleable. You know, they could, they could bend. And they finally landed on what they thought was the answer. And they filled their homes with those pipes. They actually made their plates and dishes out of, those, uh, out of, out of those, that particular metal. Well, it turns out it was lead. And there are those today that are doing research that are actually claiming that some of the craziness in the lives of the Caesars was actually connected to the lead pipes that transported the water into their homes. Ed Stetzer says, it's my contention that social media has become the lead pipe of American culture. Technologically advanced, and yet somehow so destructive all along the way. <clears throat> There's disorientation in identity, he says. That's the fourth pandemic, where today, Somehow Americans have come to the conclusion that our identity is no longer connected or rooted to biological realities. It's a fascinating um, dissonance and disconnect that has occurred just in the last 10 years or so. And then there's disruption to mental health. Those of you that have been paying attention to the mental health field, you realize that it is overrun right now with people who are facing all kinds of mental challenges psychological disturbances. It's at a record pace in American culture, so much so that Ed says if it weren't for the COVID pandemic, this would be the real pandemic, the mental stress. And then finally, he says the pan there's another pandemic, and he simply calls it division in the church, perhaps the saddest one. We're experiencing what Stetzer calls the great sort. It's unprecedented in American culture. Do you know that today, evangelical Christians are sorting themselves according to ideology rather than theology? It's the first time it's ever happened. A great deal of research is being done in the major urban centers in America, and what we're discovering is there are actually Fox News churches and CNN churches. <clears throat> People are willing to surrender their views on biblical authority, election, predestination, atonement, as long as they can gather with people who share similar political ideologies. As a matter of fact, there are some who estimate that in this last year, 30% of evangelical Christians who have moved their church membership from one to another, they have done it because of COVID protocols in their former church. It is quite a fascinating season. <clears throat> Some of you may be familiar with the writings of David Brooks. He is certainly someone I've read for years. He wrote the book Social Animal. He's a recent convert to Christ. The New York Times 
uh, author, columnist, very influential thinker in our culture today. And I'm grateful that he has found the Lord. But he has written a most insightful article. I would commend it to you. It's published by The Atlantic, October the 5th of 2020. And the title of it is, America is Having a Moral Convulsion. And it's Brooks's contention that America is in a moral crisis. He calls it a moral convulsion. And in this article, he lays out the multi-layered reality of our current cultural and social challenges as a nation. <clears throat> and here's what we know. Across our land today, people are tired. They're weary. They're antsy. Their anxiety has become manifest. They're uncertain. And think about it, y'all. Right in the midst of all of that, all this chaos is the church. How will the church fare in this particular moment? I, I, I would even make it more personal than that. In the midst of all this chaos, there's not just the church, there's this church. How will this church fare during this chaotic season? It's a fascinating question. I wanna share with you good news because here's what I would tell you about this church. I'm not an expert on the church. Now, I am a theologian and I have a very deep and high ecclesiology, which I think needs to be regained in our culture today. But I am a member of this church and feel very connected to it and very responsible for it. And here's what I would tell you about this church. This church has been here for 150 years. It has weathered just about every type of storm you can imagine. And the reason that this church is still here is because God is at work through the lives of God's people. That, that's why we're still here. And that's why we have a bright future. And so I believe the church, this church is uniquely prepared for moments just like this. This is when churches should thrive in the midst of chaos. Rather than cave in to our chaotic surroundings, I would contend this is the time for the church <clears throat> to stand strong <clears throat> in the midst of the storm. Can I give you an image of how that looks? If you have your Bible, and if you don't have this in your Bible, you can just get up right now, walk right over here where Scott is and just start reading what's engraved on the walls of this church. Can I give you an image? How about Psalm 1? Psalm 1 says, blessed is the one who doesn't walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now, come on, y'all. You know what our culture needs? Psalm 1 people. A Psalm 1 church. Let me remind you of that image of the Psalm 1 church. Um, I wanna put this on the screen for you. I want you to look at that with me. This is who we are seeking to be 
become and remain a spiritually transformative community. I want you to notice where you start. You start underground with a foundation. That's where you start. Why are we here? That which is private, unseen, essential. You love God. That's where we begin our journey. You love God, but then notice, then you go through a season of formation. What is happening to us as a church? Where we're seeking God's kingdom. And then fruitfulness, what's happening through us? Well, we love others. We're, we're loving God, we're seeking God's kingdom first and we're loving others and because of that we are deeply rooted and we can have this strong trunk that supports all this ministry and all this fruitfulness and we can be a shade to the people who need it and we can provide for them the fruit of living these lives as Psalm 1 people, following the Jesus way and the fruit will, will also influence the lives of others and they will enjoy the benefit and the beauty of it. It's a powerful image. That's why I was, I was so um, hopeful that we would actually put this psalm somewhere in writing in this church. And y'all, come on, it's right here in the walls of this building. So that's who we are. If you're new to our church, that's who we are. Why don't you take some time during the Advent season and just do a prayer walk around the sanctuary? <clears throat> because it states for us a powerful truth. I believe our world right now needs the church more than ever, and we need to be a Psalm 1 church. You see, many people in my world right now, they're looking for answers. They, they feel the chaos. And so they're putting their hope in places. Some of them believe the answer is found in Washington, D.C. And they pour all their energy and their hope and their resources, depending on where you live in the world. Maybe you think the answer's in Beijing, or maybe you think the answer's in Moscow. There are some in my culture who think the answer's on Wall Street, or maybe Rodeo Drive. But you see, you and I are Christians. We know different. <clears throat> you see, we're guided by, we are drawn into a rich, ancient story. That's why I love this season of the year. Because each year, we acknowledge the temptation to be drawn in by lesser stories and dramas invented by the very people who are searching. And we are drawn into the one cosmic story created by the very one who's searching for us. That's why Advent is so important to us. We look past Washington, D.C., as special as it might be. As a matter of fact, in the first century, God's people even chose to look past Rome. And they turned their attention to Bethlehem. <laughs> this tiny, obscure community just south of Jerusalem. Bethlehem, the burial place of Rachel. Jacob's beloved, the hometown of Jesse, the father of King David. And so today, I would say for us as a church, let's commit ourselves to stand strong in the face of the chaos and let's say to our culture, come, come, come to Bethlehem. <laughs> and that's where you'll find the answer that you are searching so desperately for.
And so this hymn, O Come All You Faithful, it speaks to us in this moment, in my opinion. And that's why I want us to spend some time unpacking its theology. So here's what I've noticed in this great hymn, this Christmas carol, and I believe it's connected to the teachings of the scripture. You'll discover there's both celebration and invitation. When you look at the words of the carol, O Come All You Faithful, and go through those four original stanzas, if you choose to, you can read all eight of them. But the four are the ones that are at the heart of it. There's, there's the celebration, there's the announcement, there's a king of angels, Christ, Messiah, Lord. There's fulfilled prophecy. He is eternal in his nature. He's the word of the Father. He's incarnated into human flesh. That's the celebration. And it's a beautiful statement about Christ, the Lord. What's the invitation? Come, <laughs> let's adore him. That's the invitation. It's a, it's a powerful announcement. But here's the invitation. Come and, and adore him. Come and worship him. I would also contend that it's an invitation and a summons. Uh, on the one hand, it's an invitation for the world. This great hymn embodies that. Th this is our message to the lost people in our world who are searching for final answers. Come, come to Bethlehem. Come and, and see what's happened. But for us as the people of God, this is no mere invitation. It's a summons from God. We're drawn into it every year. It is, if you will, a command from God. Each Advent season, we are reminded as the people of God to humbly come to Bethlehem and worship our Lord anew and afresh. We're invited in and we are summoned. Come close to this story because this story has so much power in it. It is still relevant for us even to this very day. And so for those of us who are Christians, those of us who know Jesus, we've been summoned and the summons is, come, is to come and adore and worship the Lord Jesus. And every year as believers, we launch our liturgical year with Advent. This is the beginning. And we're reminded of the power and the beauty of the story. But it's even more than a summons. When I look at this hymn, it's a summons and a summary. On the one hand, it is a summons, it's come and worship, but it's a summary. If you go back and read this hymn, it actually summarizes the gospel story for us. That's one of the reasons it has become so endearing to us and it has stood the test of time now for 300 years or so. <clears throat> it's, it's been mouthed by the people of God. It's been sung by God's people in worship because it offers to us a summary of the gospel. Go back today and if you have time, and just look at the words of this great carol. And you'll discover there's a testament about God. He's the God of light. He's the creator God. He has penetrated the darkness of the night. And because of that, a new day has dawned. And the birth of Christ has occurred. The promised one, Christos, the Messiah. And notice he is Lord from the very beginning. He is Lord at his birth. He is a king in the cradle. He is born already the king of angels. He is also the word of God. He's God in the flesh. 
He is God made human. He is God who has moved into this world personally. And the invitation is to adore him and give your life to him, serve him and worship him. You see, our world is infatuated with stories. It always has been. As one writer says, you might find a civilization who chose not to use the wheel. I defy you to find a civilization who chose not to use stories. Those stories. In Africa, I've sat around the fire in the evening and listened to those village elders tell the stories of their people, passed down from one generation to the next. I can remember as a kid in our house during the holidays, our home was that home to which everybody came. Do y'all know what I mean? And I can remember as a child seated around the table and the grown-ups were all at the table smoking cigarettes and playing canasta. <laughs> I don't even know what canasta is, but I was, I was infatuated with it. And I can remember thinking to myself, one of these days I'm gonna be sitting there smoking and playing too. <clears throat> but you know what happened at that table? My uncles and my aunts and my parents, you know what they did? They told the stories of the family and the stories of the faith. And it wasn't just all the smoke that drenched our clothes. <laughs> it was something that drenched our souls. It was the heritage, the richness of listening to these legacies, these challenges, these, these people who had to somehow endure the hardships of the Great Depression and the loss of World War II and the shock of the Vietnam War and just listening to them share these stories, it, it just gets inside of you. That's, that's what happens to us. Well, guess what Christmas is? Christmas is a real story. And it is right inside the big story. <laughs> and you know what our world needs? They need a better story than they can derive on their own. They need this story, the Christmas story. God is our creator, and this world belongs to him. And he created us, but unfortunately, we've lost our way, and we're searching trying to find our way home all over this world. People are trying to find their way home. And guess what they're looking for? They're looking for something transcendent. Something that, something that defies technological explanation. You know why I know that? Because I watch them. I watch the people in my culture and I watch what they're drawn to. And as smart as we are, and as technologically savvy as we may be, we still long for something transcendent. It might be the Marvel Universe. Star Wars. Star Trek. Harry Potter. The Lord of the Rings. All these somewhat fanciful stories that, that communicate there's, a, there's some other dimension. There's, 
there's some other reality. Well, you know what? That strikes a nerve in the hearts of people who already know that since birth <laughs> because they have the image of God in them. And so what do we as the people of God offer them? Well, we offer them a story. It's, it's this story, this story. And it can be so real. Think about this simple story we just read. An expectant woman, not yet married to a future husband. Far from home, finding themselves alone in the night and a baby is born. And there they are, living in a big world beyond their control. New parents living in the context of a culture where there's a king determined to kill their son and they so desperately want to save him. But little do they know that the hope of the ages is cradled in their very arms and he is the very one sent to save us. It's the story of Advent. In fact, I would say it's the story of the ages. It's compelling. Let's you and I share it. And let's say to our world, awash in uncertainty and chaos and anxiety, let's stand like a Psalm 1 tree as individuals and as a church. And let's say to this culture, oh, come ye to Bethlehem. Let's pray together. <clears throat> well, Father, we're, we're grateful today for this opportunity to launch this season, this season of Advent, where we can not just mark our calendar, even though we do that, but to have our, have our souls marked, have our have our lives informed, if you will, and blessed by a very real, powerful story. And I pray, Lord, for our people, the people of this church, that we'll be drawn in anew and afresh this year. That in the midst of the challenges of our day, that the power of this story will grip our hearts once again, if need be. And that the roots will go down deep and we'll be able to stand strong in the face, that all that is, in the face of all that is. And we'll be able to offer shade to those who are searching. And we'll be able to show them the way, the way of the righteous, the way that leads home. For those that are within the sound of my voice today that are looking for that path, oh Lord, we pray this Advent season they'll find their way home. And they'll recognize the beauty and the richness of this very story and it will be so compelling they'll be drawn into it through the power of your spirit. May it be so. May it be so. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.